coming up next in the podcast. My definition of manipulation is that you're doing something to influence the other person without their knowledge and without regard for their well-being. Okay. So that's why with your kids, you're trying to help them eat vegetables, but you care about your kids. So it's not manipulating them to try to help them do something that you think is good. The danger is when we think that anything we're trying to do to influence someone that they don't know about is manipulation. What happens is most influence is then off the table for us. So we have to play small. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. This podcast has a simple premise. It's to take the best wisdom of self-help and personal development and break it down as to how it relates to our world today, to your world today. If you want to care, serve, love, help, have a positive impact on anyone, you need influence. You have a product or a service or insight and wisdom you know could help others, whether it's your employer or an employee, a prospect, your kid, or an audience. Without influence, what good you have to offer is just meaningless. So what is true influence and how can you have it and masterfully use and benefit yourself and others with it? In this episode, I bring on Zoe Chance. Zoe teaches a course titled Mastering Influence and Persuasion, and it is the most popular class at the Yale School of Management. Her research on behavioral economics, neuroscience, and psychology has been published in top academic journals and covered by the Harvard Business Review, The Economist, BBC, Time, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The New York Times. Her framework for behavior change is the foundation for Google's food program. And her TEDx talk, How to Make a Behavior Addictive, has more than half a million views. So before coming to Yale, she earned a doctorate in marketing at Harvard and managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand at Mattel. And from Zoe's Yale course, again titled Mastering Influence and Persuasion, she's now written a book titled Influence is your superpower, the science of winning hearts, sparking change, and making good things happen. What you're about to hear is an in-depth dive into what is influence versus manipulation and how to deftly wield influence so you can have the positive impact on the world you desire. Uh, You can find Zoe's book, Influence is Your Superpower, of course, anywhere you buy books, but connect with her at zoechance.com. And if you are a coach or consultant, influence is more than a superpower. It's your primary power, if not your only power. And I invite you to connect with Tom Ziegler and check out his renowned coach leadership program where you can learn how to use influence in your coaching and consulting business. Find him at Ziegler.com slash coach leadership program. And now Zoe Chance and a discussion on influence. Zoe, I was just looking through the book again, sitting at home. A couple of my kids came around and I told one of my sons, he's 17, he's in high school. And I read the part to him where you were talking about pronouns, about our, when we start using these, I, me, my, that it's not necessarily a, a narcissistic, selfish aspect, but a sign of insecurity. And it just caught his attention. And he said, it reminds him of how to win friends and influence people. 
And Zoe, he, he went off on, I had, I literally had to get out the door. So dude, I got, we'll talk, let's talk about it tomorrow. I've got, cause he's so excited. He's 17 years old. He's a junior in high school and he has been exposed to this. And he says that it's, it's amazing. He says the amount of friends and my word fruition, but he's, he's really just reveling in that right now. The amount of, of friends and, uh, you know, call it popularity or just interest, but he knows how to be, as you said, interested in other people. And of course that makes him interesting. It was so much. I thought maybe we'll follow up the show with you and talk with him and get it from his perspective. But you know, we're at a point right now where culturally his culture, especially is not versed in this at all, which is why we need your book. They, uh, so they are versed in influencing each other. It's just differently from the way that we've all been doing it. Right. Okay, tell me. They are actually bringing friends together in mass movements in a way that we haven't seen, at least since this small sliver of generation in the sixties, right. When our parents were doing this, right. but they're um, <laughs> like, uh, my daughter is 13 and she and her friends are influencing each other through memes on text chat. <laughs> I don't know how any of that works. Okay. It's another type of influence. And that was, right? well, okay. I was going to ask that question because we do have, I grew up on that book, how to win friends and influence people. This is the Ziegler show. We talk about it a lot. He wrote that in 1936. So I would pose to you that I assume that the tenets of what creates influence maybe they haven't changed at the core level, but the methodologies do and you just mentioned social media. I mean, how are we doing that? Where are the areas where that's happening, where we need to take advantage of that wasn't happening back? Uh, at least I'm old enough to remember when we did not have social media or the internet and those types of things. And it's changed. The landscape's just changed so much. Yeah. And for everyone listening, I write and teach and research about interpersonal influence. Yeah. So social media influence is just not my domain of expertise. So, you know, we can talk about it, but you, there are a million people who are better than I am at um, influence on social media. But since we're talking about it, one of the things that people tend to neglect or misunderstand is that it is so hard to get somebody to take action just by you posting something on social media. Yeah. And the way that we get each other to take action tends to be through individual outreach and individual conversations. And a lot of leaders that I talk to in the business world and nonprofits tell me that they didn't understand how important those individual conversations were until they had already risen relatively high in this hierarchy. Uh, but the Dale Carnegie book that you mentioned, How to Win Friends and Influence People, I love this book. And you were also saying, is are these general psychological tenets still applying? And what I'll say is, I think that book is chock full of great advice and um, it's very simple and we didn't know what the science was yeah, okay. and at that time. Right. So if somebody just goes and applies these principles, they can still do well. And that's incredible that this book was written so long ago. When I was selling my book proposal in 2018, Audible told me that that book, Dale Carnegie's book, was the number one book bringing new readers to their platform still, yeah. which is so crazy. It is crazy. I don't quite understand that as much as I love the book, but I don't understand. But it's, it's well, again, we needed, that's why yeah, I was interested in yours, a new, a new perspective thanks. at it. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing about 
about this book and some of the earlier work on influence is that it came from the perspective of this guy who sounds like a wonderful guy. And he's this white dude doing business with other white dudes in an environment where um, power structure, hierarchy, diversity of gender, race, cultural backgrounds, things like that just weren't coming into play. It's not that he was doing right. something wrong. He was just writing about his world. Right. And um, and the world that we live in now is, to my mind, fortunately, a lot more complicated than that. Well, it is. So let's break down influence. I mean, that's the title of the book. Influence uh, is your superpower. And you know, as I read the book and I'm thinking about these concepts, I'm, I'm to some degree thinking, is it is it even our only power? At least from a... I refer to this audience as an aspiring audience. They're not off listening to NPR's you know, latest crime drama and being entertained. They're here to learn something, to grow. So an aspiring audience. And in that, in that effort to have purpose, to serve people. And I realize there's so many people that have such great things to offer. And I've been in this position and you know, will always continue to be to some degree, have something great to offer. You know, you could help somebody and yet you don't have any influence. And that's, that's heartbreaking when we know, I know something, I've experienced something that I could offer this person that would help them or maybe even flat out change their life, save their life. And yet, if I don't have influence, which we so often run into, which is why you have the book, we're powerless. That, that's a really impotent feeling. There's also the reality though, Kevin, that most people don't want our advice And most people, even who seek our advice, are not going to take action on our advice. And I'm somebody who is, my big personal development thing that I'm working on right now, ironically, is giving less advice. Because I find that, and you know from being a coach, I'm sure that you're much better at this than I am, that when other people are giving themselves advice, rather than me giving them the advice, and I'm the sounding board, and I'm the listener and I can give them, you know, little bit tidbits on the margin, that's going to be more helpful for them. When there's somebody who's living their life that I know they're making a terrible decision and I know what they can be doing better. They really don't want to hear from me. And I like people in my family, for example, I don't know if you've had this, but people in my family that I desperately want to tell them what to do. And many times I have, yeah, and that is just not helpful. So the book that I'm writing comes from the perspective of nobody wants to be told what to do. So how can we be more influential without being that person who's telling everybody what to do? Okay. Well, you bring up another point that I pulled out of your book and I'm going to paraphrase it, that we have this, that people, we as people also have a set point of pushback against making a a decision. You said it, you said it well, uh, but we have that, you know, we're here trying to have influence to help somebody move a general direction, go make a decision, do something. And we're in a place right now I've referred to it lately as just decision fatigue. And I find myself there and I'm looking at the latest, the next offer on something that I may even want. And I really would just rather not, because as you said, if I do, if I go forward, I got to hassle with your word was considering it. I've got to just, I'd rather just not. And you talked about coaching. So we got a lot of coaches and consultants in the audience. 
And that's one where often we're not competing against the person making a decision to go with someone else. We're competing against a decision for them not to make a decision and just not do it because it's not often critical or acute. And so we're almost in that sense to what you said, then we're almost coming with one, they don't want to be told what to do and they'd really just rather not have to make a decision anyway. So here we're coming as an influencer and you're, you've got uh, two strikes against you. Is that fair? Uh, at least, at least, at least two. two. Okay. Every time you're trying to influence someone to do something, you're a threat. And the, mm. the way that their whole brain is designed is to f- have its number one priority be threat detection yeah. and response. Okay. So you're trying to influence someone and you're asking for their attention or their time, maybe their money, maybe their social capital, whatever it is that in your mind, maybe what you have to offer is so much more valuable. And so you feel great about like, hey, I have this great opportunity. It's going to change your life. It's going to be amazing. But what they're focused on is what they're going to have to give up because you're a threat. And that's what we focus on first. In this, again, I'm going to come back to the, to the high level of influence. I like looking up words. Um, I'm a wordy in that sense. And The first one you get when you put it into Google is the capacity to have an effect on the character development or behavior of someone or something. And you hit this pretty quick. It might even be in the intro to the book about how we can often have this adverse feeling towards influence because we associate manipulation in there. And I'm going to, I have a lot of kids and I'm thinking about them. And sometimes I am absolutely trying to manipulate them, but it's for their (laughs) own good. It's I'm trying to get them to eat their vegetables. It's, it's for their good. I don't get any points in heaven or in the parenting council for getting them to eat their vegetables. You do. You do. Do I? Okay. I'll get it from you. Thanks. Uh, But that, so am I trying to manipulate? I see people who will dis manipulation like this from an influence or a sales aspect. And then what I see them do with their kids is sometimes criminal. I mean, they're hiding the vegetables in some other thing to get them down. And so I'm interested in that, that even as we look at, because on one hand, I think we could make the argument, no, a good, healthy influence, interpersonal influence like you're talking about is not manipulation. But then I'm thinking, is that so bad if it is, if it is for that person's good? It's, really important that we each of us decide what manipulation means to us. Okay. And I very much believe that we are served with a definition that's closer to yours than some definition like, um, well, actually, maybe you're saying you're calling it manipulation, but you're fine with that. And I guess to clarify, what I would say is what you're doing is not manipulation, Because my definition of manipulation is that you're doing something to influence the other person without their knowledge and without regard for their well-being. Okay. So that's why with your kids, you're trying to help them eat vegetables, but you care about your kids. So it's not manipulating them to try to help them do something that you think is good. The danger is when we think that anything we're trying to do to influence someone that they don't know about is manipulation, what happens is most influence is then off the table for us. So we have to play small because we're not ever going to do something like we're studying and learning about influence. And we have all of these tools and insights available at our disposal, but it's just because other people don't know those things yet. Yeah. 
that they might not know. Like, let's say as an example, I could try to influence you to make a decision by giving you two options instead of just saying, here's one, do you want it or not? And if I say, here's one, do you want it or not? You're inclined to say not. And if I'm saying instead, here, here are two choices, which one do you prefer? You're inclined to choose one. Right. I know that I'm influencing you and you may not know that you're being influenced by the way that I've set up the decision. But the reality is that you were going to be influenced by the way I set up the decision, whether I knew what I was doing or not. So if I just said, hey, here's this one thing, do you want it or not? I'm influencing you to say not. Yeah. So I, it to me, it's important that we realize we have an influence on people all around us all the time. It's just a matter of, for some of us, we're influencing people more mindfully and intentionally. And for the rest of us, we're influencing people by accident. So I want to help people influence intentionally and with good goals and with the other person's well-being in mind, rather than us going around accidentally influencing, and then we leave real power in the hands of the power-hungry people who study and practice influence intentionally. Well said. And this isn't, my focus is not parenting necessarily, but when you say that, I'm reminded of being told that is probably some parenting expert I had on the show at some point, but they said, in essence, to influence that it is my responsibility and opportunity to influence my kids. If I don't, someone else will, they will be influenced. That was very, that was very convicting uh, to me in my role as a parent, but I can say the same thing as an employer, as a coworker that we, you know, people are going to be influenced. We have the opportunity to influence them for those things that we find, I'm going to say is life giving as opposed of life taking and yeah, parenting is an acute place, but in any place we have that opportunity. And I think everybody listening to the show, that's why they're listening. They want the opportunity to influence people for their, that person's betterment. Yeah. And, and parenting isn't my main thing either, but because we're talking about it, so few people on earth know that reading parenting books is one of the best thing you can do to become a better leader. There are many psychologists working on developmental psychology and teaching people how to influence their kids. And we have all these books because kids are so hard to influence. But everything that they're teaching about influencing children, almost all of this is relevant for adults. We're the same people. And if anybody wants one book on parenting, my very, very favorite book is called Playful Parenting. And it's a beautiful way to be influencing kids, but also anyone else through warmth and humor and showering them with love. You are listening to my conversation with Yale professor Zoe Chance about influence. Her book is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. And you can connect with Zoe at zoechance.com. It is a pretty profound litmus test. I have amazing kids. I have amazing teenagers. I am aware that my efforts to influence, I have been, that's put me to the test a little bit more with them. I've got two teenage boys right now, 16 and 17. And they just, I refer to their, their BS meter is so acute 
that it really has caused me to come down to things and go, look, we've got to really talk about this. And they can shoot holes in my uh, perspectives and my own propaganda, you know, with them. And it's been interesting and, and to look at how do I influence them? And they're so indicative of the culture. And to some degree, I mean, you're talking about that. Am I, I'm, I'm not technically a kid, but I often do. And I'm trying to figure out how to manipulate myself, which we'll talk about <laughs> in the habits show, you know, too. But I mean, that is in essence, we'll speak to that. I mean, I remember having Robin Sharma, on the show and we talked about relationships and I asked him about some of his relational guidance for people. And he said, well, number one, my first relationship that I'm concerned about is myself. What is my relationship with myself? That's going to guide all the other relationships. So here we are talking about how to influence other people. Talk to me about that. I mean, the first part, we're, we're products of ourselves too. And we're going to get up in the morning and we're going to influence ourselves the directions that we want our, to, uh, ourselves to go or not. We got a big job cut out for us looking in the mirror. Yeah. And I believe that one of the most important things we can do to better influence other people with respect to ourselves is to have more patience, tolerance, and empathy for us as flawed, well-intentioned human beings. And if we can shine that gentle, warm light on ourselves, and we can forgive ourselves for all the ways in which we suck, then we can forgive other people for all the ways in which they suck. And this frame of mind and this way of relating to ourselves and other people is highly influential. It's not at all what um, most people are trying to do on self-help programs and things like that. Um, But forgiveness and tolerance first for yourself gives you forgiveness and tolerance for other people. And then they let you in to influence them. Well, let's hit on that then. I mean, we're talking about, you know, again, the ability to influence people. And as I talked about at the beginning of the show, my son talking about him seeing the fruition of that, of having influence with people, of having, being other focused. And your line that I pulled out, Zoe, that is to me worth the price of admission for the show is you attract others' attention by giving them yours. I mean, it's so elementary. And yet, you know, that corporate America right now is to some degrees, it feels like they're hemorrhaging because they're saying people do not, especially the younger, not to pick on the younger, but just these newer workforces, they don't have these interpersonal skills, the soft skills that I don't like that term. Somebody recently said the necessary skills, and I, I agree, but they don't have these often, these interrelational skills of knowing someone like something like that, that we need to be others focused, even if it's a tactic, even if it is manipulation, it's still the best way. It's the most profitable, even the right thing to do, but the most profitable. And that's not one that we're being taught. Where are we being taught is what I would is be the question, I guess. Where are we being taught? Yeah, these where do we get this outside of your your book? I mean, this is not something that's in our average curriculum is how to be influential with people, how to even be yeah. liked and, 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 and attracted to other people. Yeah, it's crazy that we don't teach classes like this in high school, definitely yeah. in college. When I created the course that I teach at Yale School of Management, it's called Mastering Influence and Persuasion. And it was sold out standing room only. I love the that. Very testi- first day. I love that testimony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and now it's the most popular class at the school. And we have a relatively small business school, but 600 people applied for this one class last time I taught it. And that's before the book. So 
when, um, when we are wanting to have more influence, we have all of these countervailing forces where almost all of us are both wishing that we would have more of the outcomes, but not wanting to do whatever it takes to get there. Okay. And most of us don't realize that the whatever it takes to get there is a lot of a lot of personal development and interpersonal skills and things like that. In business schools, we teach more of this stuff than in many other places, although there's no class like mine. And I created it to be the class I would have wanted hmm. as an MBA student. Um, but and I have a daughter who's 13 and um, going into high school and she's been really lucky to be in schools that focused a lot on social and emotional development at the same time as academic development. But most kids don't get to have this at my daughter's elementary school. One little example. And I love this school. It's called cold spring. It's a little hippie school in new Haven, Connecticut. When, as soon as you start the school, um, maybe I don't remember preschool, but definitely kindergarten, Every single student is up in front of a whole room of kids and adults at least twice during the year where you practice public speaking in these weekly community meetings. And this is including five-year-olds getting up and speaking. And if you can't read yet, there's a teacher whispering into your mouth the words to say, oh. you're holding a microphone. If you can read, they give you a script and there's a poster board where they've taped on it, the thing for you to read so that you don't have to try to remember what it is that you're going to say. And you're just getting practice again and again and again each year doing public speaking. It's like mini Toastmasters. And then these kids, by the time they graduate from sixth grade, they're 12 years old, but they're comfortable speaking in front of a room of adults. That's profound. Um, I'll send my kids there. That's, that's well, it brings me to this concept. Now you use the word charisma. And I was thinking before I came to that chapter in your book, I was thinking of charming. We often look at people and say, oh, so-and-so is just so charming. They're you know, an extrovert. And of course, we have all the labels that we give on that. They're charismatic. And you said that's such a popular term. And we look at kids especially. And I wonder if that's where we get the skewed perception, or I think it is. I'll look for your validation on that, or uh, if, I'm, if I'm on track. We tend to look at kids especially and go, oh, little Johnny, little Betty is so charming and charismatic and all the kids follow them as if it is this birthright that they got that other kids don't like getting red hair, or green eyes or something like that, as opposed to looking at it, flipping it kind of like what you said and saying, well, maybe they just by nature or by some exposure, they, f they figured out how to do the things that are charming and are charismatic, which still brings it back to a math aspect of one plus one equals two. If you will do these things, which is what I feel like your book is showing us, we can all be charismatic. I guess maybe, maybe it won't be as more as comfortable for everybody. That has got to be fair. We can all be far more charismatic than we already are. Okay. Absolutely. And, um, it, doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be a rock star, but there are so many even rock stars who started out really shy. Yeah. And I relate to anyone who started out shy or still is because I was so shy as a child. And I was such a nerd that my theory was that my voice was the same frequency as the ambient sounds of the universe. And that's why nobody heard me and people would wow. speak over me when I talked. But and I, I 
got interested in um, connecting with people and trying to be heard through doing theater. And I've been interested in performing and then being a director and a teacher where I've coached people also in public speaking. And one of my favorite stories is the story of Prince. And I was a huge fan of Prince. So sad when he died. One of the most incredible concerts I've ever been to was a very small concert with Prince in Las Vegas at a studio that he owned, Club 2121. And this was just, I, I can't express in words how much anticipation was there for me and all these other people in the room and the audience with me while we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And they just drew out the anticipation where they let us in, but we had to wait for two hours for Prince to come on stage. And we're just getting more and more excited. And it's also hot, all of these people and there's lights and there's music and they're building this, like, it's like at a Tony Robbins event, if you've ever Mm -hmm. been to one. Okay. So that, level of just extreme excitement, craziness. Prince walks on the stage and he looks directly into my eyes. And the first line of his first song is something like, are we alone? And I turn to my friend Eldar next to me. I say, oh my God, I'm going to faint. And then in that moment, woman next to me on the other side, total stranger drops to the ground in a dead faint lost consciousness because Prince's charisma was so powerful that it overpowered her and me. But this guy didn't start out that way at all. And he started out as being so quiet and so shy that when Warner Brothers first signed him, he was that talented of a musician, but they came to a show and they said later that he, in this show, he was just quietly, quietly, slowly rotating till he faced the back of the stage. And anytime he had to speak to the audience, he didn't speak above a whisper because he was just so shy. And so Warner Brothers said, listen, you can produce an album in the studio, but you will never go on tour. And it wasn't until Rick James invited Prince to be his warm-up opening act when Rick James was on his Super Freak tour. And Prince at that time had a number one hit. I want to be your lover, top of the Billboard charts. But he had to be the warm-up act for Rick James. And Prince, who had studied so carefully and practiced so many hours a day to learn his multiple instruments, he was practicing and studying charisma and stagecraft. And he was observing what does Rick James do? And he learned how to do those things. And soon after... Prince masters it, and Rick James is telling people that he's jealous. I love the analogy. I mean, you're saying it is constructed in essence. I mean, this is the age old story about Zig Ziglar himself. One of the people they said he was the master of the stage, to use your words, like no other in his uh, amongst his peers. He must have been a natural. And of course, that's not the story. The guy was a bigger student than anyone. And he learned how to do really? that. Kind of, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh my gosh. Well, you, and of course his son, Tom, who is such a dear friend of mine. I mean, he witnessed it. His, his dad recited this stuff over and over and over. And interestingly, I was with Zig, uh, not too long after, or not too long before he passed away. And he had had an accident was, had some impairment and these, these things that he had just drilled into his head, 
that's what came out in his, as, mm. his, as he was more inhibited, that's what came out in his talks about, you know, marriage and, and character and morals and the stuff he's taught on stage. It was so ingrained in his head because he had just, like you said, like Prince, he had meticulously trained himself and taught himself to the point that he gets on stage and everybody thinks, oh, he's a natural. It's the furthest thing from it. So I love your analogy of this is a learned thing. That's the good news for all of us, isn't it? That's right. Yeah. 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 And then, and the good thing for anyone who like me has really sucked at it is that as we practice it, develop it, we learn what it takes and then we're able to coach other people. So the best coaches are people for whom this did not come naturally. Well, and I'm thinking, I, I like the fact that you are teaching this class and you're up front as the teacher. I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm up front teaching a clown class, I better be a pretty good clown. I better be able to pull this off. They don't want just some grumpy dude over here teaching them the mechanics. They want somebody who can exemplify that. It must have been quite a journey, even from you coming to understand this arena, to stand up front of the class. And you're talk about a stage. You're, you've got to have been, uh, that's, that's some big accountability. How's that? It, it, it really is. And I actually had a huge transformation from when I first started teaching the class. And I felt that burden of trying to be and trying to show people that I belong here, huh. that I know about influence, that I have the charisma that they're looking for. And I was treating my class like a classroom, like a stage and me as the star. But that actually is kind of crappy way to teach people okay. in a workshop environment. And I don't mean someone like Zig Ziglar, who's up on stage in front of thousands of people, you know, or Tony Robbins, you come in charisma blazing. It's not a workshop. It's not a conversation. You need to shine. And that's what I do in a, in a keynote kind of situation too. But in a classroom, you really want to build camaraderie and intimacy and community. And so being the star is counterproductive to that. And Danny Meyer, the restaurateur, came and spoke at Yale School of Management a few years ago. And he had the perspective that everyone is in the hospitality business. Okay. And when he said to all of us in the room, you're all in the hospitality business, I thought he meant the MBA students going into consulting or banking or whatever they're doing. And I, I was thinking of serving customers and, okay, maybe that makes sense. And it took a little while for me to internalize what this would be like if, for me as a teacher, I took on the frame of I'm in the hospitality business and I radically changed how I teach and I am so much better now. And I hadn't realized I had these extreme standards for students, for TAs who worked for me, like you, you definitely can't be late. I wanted to bar the door. And if I were allowed to, then the fire code didn't prevent it. I would have barred the door so nobody can come in late. But I was actually asking TAs, this is so embarrassing. I was asking TAs when someone would come in late to go and quietly shame them to just whisper into their ear something like, um, you know, our the class starts at whatever time, are you going to be able to make it on time next time or something like that? And I had essentially punishments for people not coming to class. And if you miss, it's okay to miss one session, but if you miss another one, your grade gets docked for every session that you miss. And um, all of these assignments and just all this complication where there were moving parts. I needed everything to be perfect. Mm -hmm. 
so that I could shine on stage. And then I run out immediately after to take care of the rest of my life. But now with the TAs, we all show up early and we are in hosting people, inviting them, happy for them to come. We learn everyone's name as quickly as we can. And then we're going and making small talk with people. I play music before class. And when I'm teaching the class, my perspective is not that you need to perform and I'm going to judge you or I need to perform and we're all going to judge me, but I'm creating an opportunity for learning to happen. I can't control your experience, but I can offer you a situation where there can be learning and transformation. And then you're in charge of your experience. I don't take attendance anymore at all. 95% of people show up on any given day. Many of them never miss a class. After the class, I hang out and just have informal conversations with whoever wants to stick around. And um, I'm just happy for them to be there. And the students fundamentally can't do anything wrong. They have to get a grade, right? But I'm not going to judge them for almost anything. There's almost nothing they could do to have me judge them. It's like a guest shows up at your house and they break a glass or they spill wine, right? Or they come late. It's really okay, right? You're not mad at them. They're your guest. And if they're not having fun, that's too bad. But you did whatever you could for them to try to have fun. It's not your responsibility. It feels like we're round circle to where we started on the perspective here of self-focus or other Focus. So you just shared your own journey. So what happened? What did you see transpire in your own influence? Because at the end of the day, I'm looking at what does influence get me? And this is what I was talking with my son about this morning. What does it get you? It ultimately gets, it gains you trust, which I feel like we're in the era where I don't know of a greater, more valuable asset. I don't have one personally. I mean, it's, it's, it's what, it's what I rely on. I mean, I'm a professional podcast host. If people don't trust me, they won't listen to me and we won't have our advertisers and we don't get paid. I mean, so you made this shift. I would think your influence increased, your trust increased, and therefore the byproduct of that was your students had greater success. Is that a fair trajectory? Yeah. And honestly, Kevin, I would say influence gets you everything or at least just about everything short of spiritual enlightenment. And I don't mean that when you become influential, suddenly all of your wishes come true and, you know, God is just showering abundance on your head and on your doorstep, but that almost anything that you want, almost anything, you have to influence other people or you have to influence yourself. And often it's both. You are listening to my conversation with Yale professor Zoe Chance about influence. Her book, is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. And you can connect with Zoe at zoechance.com. Okay, on this aspect, you, you also talked about, and I pulled it out, that we tend to think of, and it influences how we look at influence, we tend to think, and we know this, I think most people have heard this, we think that we make decisions logically. And you said, of course, the science proves otherwise, that we generally uh, th do things emotionally, not logically. And you use the words of 
that we think we use reason, that we think we use our rationale. So that's what we think that we do. And so we could tend to go about influence that way, as opposed to realizing, no, this is an emotional thing. We are influenced emotionally. So are other people. So we're talking about influencing them and relating to their emotions, which I guess that's what, gosh, I'm, I'm talking myself back in that circle of it by proxy does make us, if we're going to have, we have to be self or I mean, other focus, we've got to be, because we're talking about their emotions. We've got to be in tune, which takes, if I take the focus on me, I've got to have some level of self-confidence. If I'm going to put the focus on them, I've got to have some social awareness. Is that a true path? Absolutely. If someone's going to be open to your influence, they need to feel that you care about them in yeah. some way. Right. Yeah. And, um, and the, it's interesting that you connect shifting the focus off of yourself and self-confidence mm -hmm. because a lot of people think of that person who's trying to be the center of attention as the self-confident person, mm -hmm. but that person is often the insecure person and the person who can sit back and listen and ask questions and observe and let you share your ideas first is the more confident person. And an exemplar of this would be the Dalai Lama, who okay. sometimes comes up when I say, who do you, when you think of a charismatic person, lots of times it's Bill Clinton or Obama, sometimes Hitler, um, but the Dalai Lama as well. And he's so quiet, right? But there are many people who are so quiet and they're so present that our attention focuses like a laser on that person. We want to hear everything they have to say. I was just given tickets by a friend to go and invited to go with him to go see Jordan Peterson. So two nights ago, I went downtown Colorado Springs and we went into the big auditorium, 15, 1800 people got up there. It's supposed to start at seven and it doesn't and goes on to seven, 10, seven, 20. And they're building some anticipation, as you said, with Prince. And then uh, of course he comes on stage I would not, I don't know that I would, it's hard for me to label him as charismatic in the way that we think about that. Cause he is fairly soft-spoken. He's fairly slowly spoken, but that seems to be his frame of charisma is that being very present, being very thoughtful, taking the question, having a pause. These are all things that I struggle with because I tend to just be rapid fire but it was, it was very engaging. And now whether that was him naturally, whether he learned and adopted that aspect of, you know, charisma, either way, it was to me, I've been to enough of these things to see there's some construction that took place here. And I, I kind of am liking that word that influence we can all don't have to be a natural, don't have to be super outgoing. We can construct it. We can all be, as you said, we can all be more influential, but I guess it opens the door there to say there are, if we were to take that charisma, you could chop it up. I guess that's what you're saying. You can chop that up into a pie. There are so many different ways to come at it that probably are in your comfort zone. Actually, I think there are only two ways to come at it. Okay. Tell but me. But there are different ways that um, that these manifest okay. and, and it's two at the same time. I've asked hundreds and hundreds of people to name a charismatic person, and then they describe three traits that person has. So let's just say, so Jordan Peterson for you is a charismatic person, right? And three things about Jordan Peterson, you said um, that he's thoughtful, mm -hmm. right? Was that one? And yeah. he pauses. Yeah. And um, 
So I guess, and, and soft-spoken, but I don't know if those were the things that you were saying made him charismatic or those were things that you were surprised he could have and still be charismatic. Uh, no, I think it did make him, it was engaging. It was part, to me, it was part okay. of the construction and it, uh, it was very different from the charisma of Gary Vaynerchuk. A lot of people yeah. know him and he's going to be, not that he's not those things, but his construction up on stage, dramatically different. Those are great juxtapositions because Jordan's yeah. there in his 2000 plus whatever suit, uh, very, you know, well trimmed and, and cut, very thoughtful, very, uh, I would say soft-spoken in, in essence, and even slow-spoken. And Gary Vaynerchuk, of course, is like a cartoon character, just going at it, both with big audiences. It, to me, it opens the door for different aspects of that. Charisma is not just one thing, which I'm afraid people get caught in. Yeah. And and by the way, I don't think that having a big audience means that they're necessarily charismatic. There are all kinds of people okay. in leadership roles and who have have a big following who are not so charismatic. Um, but but these two people who for you are charismatic and for lots of other people are charismatic. They're a great example of very different types of people who still have these two main building block traits that if you name a charismatic person, and write down traits, and this is over hundreds of people, 85% of those traits fall into two buckets, okay. which are confidence and connection. Wow. They can look different. But every charismatic person displays confidence, and they know how to connect. The confidence part can sound loud and booming, like, say, Tony Robbins. It can sound quiet and thoughtful, like, say, Jordan Peterson. And it it can sound like crazy, like Gary V. And and Gary V is not just loud and fast, but he doesn't care what anybody thinks, yeah. right? And so this is another element of what confidence can look like. And the connection part of it is connecting with the people in their audience. So not everybody likes Jordan Peterson. Not everybody likes Gary V. Right. But they are connecting with the people in their audience. And those people are feeling seen and feeling heard. And what Jordan Peterson does when he pauses is one just so simple way to connect with people because it's, it gets hard to follow the mental trajectory that like, if someone's on a fast moving train, like I actually can't listen to Gary Vee. I have never listened to a complete talk because I, I just, my mind starts to short circuit. But when you give, when you give a pause, then everybody's attention catches up to you. Yeah. So this is one way of connecting and we can connect through hate as well as through empathy. Like Hitler is an example of someone who connected very well and very deeply with his own audience, um, but through a united hatred and fear of other people. Well, it almost causes me to come up with another analogy or another person as well. Cause we're talking about using Jordan and Gary V both are, honestly in the in the culture almost in a divisive category uh so i'm trying to think of somebody else because that doesn't we don't want to associate you don't have to be divisive and conflicting and uh and volatile even to be charismatic you know Brene brown i've been looking at her new book recently and she's one i don't think she would be put in the divisive category she's very yeah she's a great example very gracious and very yeah very comfortably 
but I would call her, I would call her charismatic. And I do hear you saying there's a lot of people on stage with a big audience and they have celebrity power. They're not very charismatic, but for whatever reason, people are going to follow them, but I would put her in there and boy, she's, she's, she's comfortable. Yeah, she connects very well and she shows a completely different type of confidence, yeah. which is which is fascinating to me, which is being confidently vulnerable. So she yeah. tells you all of the yeah. all of her shortcomings. She's just completely open about it. And 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 it's not just that we connect with some of those things, but actually you have to be very confident to be able to do that on stage. And we feel that power from her. Well, then I want to ask you about that, Zoe. I mean, because if people are hearing that, so to be charismatic, to have influence, I need to have confidence, but we just showcase it can come across in very different ways. How are, and we all want to do it in a way that is authentic to us, but what does that look like? Cause you're saying, you know, using the self-focus for, for instance, is not a, an indicator of confidence. It kind of goes back to you again, to your statement, you attract others attention by giving them yours. And to me, I feel like that is an aspect of confidence. It's very hard to step back, to be in a social situation and to be others focus and not draw attention to self. I mean, I learned that. So it was a constructed, educated learning that I got from my parents and Zig Ziglar and how to win friends and influence people. And I learned that I'm so grateful, but that took actually initially, maybe if it wasn't confidence, it at least took training construction, I guess is yeah. back to your word. Yeah. 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 And on stage, it's hard to be giving attention to other people if we're not practiced at it, because we're very self-conscious and we're absolutely terrified yeah. standing in front of a room, almost all of us. And this includes me, even though I do professional speaking, I get scared every time I'm going to be in front of a bigger audience than I've ever been in or who um, have lots of different reasons. I still get scared. But if your intention before you go on and then subconsciously you're coming back to this is other focused where what you want to do is you want to be helpful, right? It's not about how can I persuade them to do the thing that I want them to do, but how can I be helpful? Yeah. And even for me, one of my, one of my goals and practices being up on stage is just loving those people. And I'm actively actually loving those people. That's my style. And it's not Gary V's style, right? So you don't have to be standing up on stage loving people, but to figure out how to, how to connect with them. And when you're able to take your focus off of yourself, you are by definition less self-conscious. And so you're more confident in that. But you can also just practice in conversations with people, not on stage. It's much easier. Practice talking less, listening more, asking more questions. So let's say if I'm on a stage giving a talk, my goal is how can I be helpful? Mm -hmm. But my goal listening to a talk or my goal in a conversation with someone might be what can I learn? So just being curiously inquisitive, what could I learn that might be helpful for me or interesting or helpful from some, for somebody else? And, and, and bringing back Dale Carnegie again, Something that he coached people to do is use people's names. So a lot of us have been doing that. And he said a person's name is the most beautiful sound in the universe. And research since Dale Carnegie died has found that people's names actually activate a unique pattern in their brain that's a self-relevant 
uh, it's a self-relevant activation pattern that we only see when we hear our own names and if we're in a partnership with an, also the name of a romantic partner. And you know that something unique is going on because your name can wake you up from sleep and you, you can hear your name in a crowded room of people talking where you don't hear anything else that's going on. But then somebody says, Kevin, and you're like, well, so Dale Carnegie was right about a lot of interesting things. He just didn't know why. Right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, Zoe, uh, yes. I, on confidence, you mentioned in talking about confidence, you said the word three, uh, two or three times connection yeah. as the overlay. You said the two things in the bucket, 85% of the time fall in there. So in that same question, as I did with confidence, how does that connection, how do you see that happening generally within this topic of influence because, well, I mean, I know you say we attract others' attention. I keep repeating it by giving them yours, but how to do that? Well, we've all seen that done poorly. We've all seen it done and it felt manipulatively. Um, yeah. How do we do, what are some of the top ways in regards to influence that we can increase people's feeling of connection with us, which is ultimately what we're doing? When we are trying to influence somebody, one of the best things that we can do is be influenceable. So if you wow. walk into a conversation with someone where you're just pushing your agenda, it's very unlikely that you're going to make headway. Or if you manage to push them into saying yes now, they will regret it later and they will want to get out of it. Hmm. But being actually deeply open-minded and interested in what the other person has to say and curious it's most people are really good at connecting it's not that we don't know how to connect it's just that we forget to do it and then it's easy to just talk too much so if we can shut up a little bit that's very helpful too which is again you can go i remember as a young man being taught some of this and going into social situations now just being aware and just watching the conversation happen and see the consummate one person tells a story. If they're not interrupted, you can see the other person that's just chomping at the bit to get in and tell their part of the story and to see it go back and forth. And they're not repeating each other's names. They're not well. And, and it was those, those sweet words back to that, like your name, that sweet word, the one, the response that I was given was somebody says their whatever tells their story, says their thing. And the next sweetest response, maybe after their name was to say, man, that's really interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. Tell me more. Yeah. yeah. Count how Follow many times up. that happens in a, in yeah. a social. Yeah. Follow up questions are so important. And yeah. researchers at Harvard have done some experiments looking at this and finding out, for example, in a dating context, they'll do speed dates and then see who are more successfully getting invitations for a second date afterward wow. and it's it's people want to have a second date with someone who asks them not just questions but follow-up questions follow up i mean that's so simple and yet yeah. and yet I, I would i would challenge everybody who's listening go into your next social situation whether it's the dinner table or a work group or the water cooler chat or the bar wherever you are and listen Listen to it go along and, and see how many times does that happen that somebody just to say, man, that's interesting. That, that right there to me is validating for me to say something and for it to just be considered for a millisecond. 
Yeah. It's got to be one of the most rare things and it's probably worth its weight in gold. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the pieces that you brought up in the book that to me was somewhat troubling, honestly, I, I, I recognize it, but I didn't have, I'm grateful that you brought it up in the book that we can seek to influence somebody. So here we are back to where we were talking a minute ago, where we have something we know we, we really altruistically, we want to help person X. We know that we can, we hear what's going on. We see what's going on and know that we have some value to offer. And so let's say we get the opportunity, we follow some of these things and we get a response back from them and we actually influence them. We changed their mind. And of course, then what you showcase is we can so often do that and we didn't change your behavior that it's, that's troubling. Tell, tell me more. It is troubling. It's so frustrating, right? There's a vast abyss between intentions and behavior and including for us, right? Like, do you make New Year's resolutions? I'm making resolutions every week and trying okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm, okay. I'm way too far on that. Spread. Yeah. So, yes. So, so I'm amazed that 30% of people actually follow through on their new year's resolutions. Do you have a resolution right now? A resolution right now. What am I working on uh, right now? My resolution and from a personal development standpoint is to, I'm, I'm literally reading Brene Brown's latest book, Atlas of the heart, which I just got the bestseller list from my literary agents and the thing selling 10,000 copies last week uh, alone. And I'm reading that and striving to learn uh, literally her book is my, it's my, it's what's been prescribed to me to learn about emotions and to learn about my own. So right now it's devoting literally the time and the attention and the study. And I'm not just reading it to read it, but to study and then to take my own emotions daily in whatever given moment. And as my counselor says, not just even be aware of them, but not to distract myself, medicate, whatever, sit on them, sit in them and feel them. So there's my, Mm -hmm. how's that for a candid uh, resolution. That's, that's a big one right now. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. And beautiful. Thank you. And, um, and how is it going? My awareness is better. I'm more right now at the, I'm going to say I'm at the, if this is 12 steps, I'm at three maybe. And it's the awareness of this is one of those moments that I should sit in and I don't want to. And often I'm still not, I'm still going to go for a run. I'm going to put some music on or what, or whatnot, because the, well, this is like a therapy session, Zoe, uh, <laughs> because my capacity to do that is so atrophied. It's, it's very, I'm, I'm having to grow a new muscle. How's that? Um, so it's, 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 it's progress. I will, I'll claim progress, uh, feels a way, a ways off from success. And it sounds like you're doing it perfectly. Why? Because the biggest way that people fail in their resolutions and the things we want to change in our behavior is that we are reaching too far and Mm. we're not giving ourselves credit for baby steps. Okay. So like a baby step is that you're reading this book, right? It's not a, it's a lot of time to read a book. It's that's, but like you read a chapter of a book and this is you telling yourself, I'm following through on this thing that I care about of developing my 
deeper emotions and my emotional intelligence. And then you are sometimes sitting in the emotion that you don't want to feel. Right. And, um, and, oh my God, everyone like, 98% of the people listening would love to have the procrastination tactic of go for a run. (laughs) How great would that be, right? You don't want to do the thing you can do. You can relate though. This, I listened to your Ted talk and you know that your walking is my running and mountain biking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I know it is a a distraction tactic, but you're literally doing exactly the thing because you're making baby steps of progress. And that's what we don't tend to give ourselves credit for. And what we don't tend to give other people credit for. Positive reinforcement is just all about recognizing baby steps and being on this path. So you sound like someone who's rocking the resolutions. Thank you for the positive enforcement reinforcement, Zoe. Um, I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful I, that came up. Uh, it's it's highly relevant. And well, right along with this, again, one of the things that well, the reasons you're on this show is because it stood out to me is the ask, uh, which is not. The con or the power of asking. I had Mark Victor Hansen and uh, and Crystal Hansen on the show maybe last year, and their book is something of that title, "The Power of Asking" or something like that. But I didn't take it in this context. And when we're on this topic, I mentioned ago of a minute ago of influence. We can have influence. We can get the opportunity. We can. Uh, I was going to say act it out. That's a weird way of saying it. But we can you know we can have influence with somebody. It takes root to some degree. We change their mind, but we didn't change their behavior. And we talked before about our propensity to just want to reject doing anything. Uh, We want to go with, as you say, ease over the effort. We don't want to make the effort. And then you come along with, it's actually chapter 3.5, which I really like that. I may give that to my literary agents because I've had a couple of chapters. It's not really a whole chapter. So I like your three and a half. Thanks for uh, introducing me to that. And it's ask. And it's in regards to, really to me, it was, going to bat against those couple things that we just talked about and people don't want to make the effort, but it's so hard to say no. I guess it's, you hit my personal bias. If you ask me, I mean, I, that's part of it. We can get more therapy. I'm a, I'm a yes, man. I'm a people pleaser. I I don't like conflict. And so my go-to for myself, for my own medication and my own self image is yes. Yes, I'll do it. I'm Superman. I'll, I'll, yeah, it's easy to jump into the God complex and I'll do that. And so if you ask me and yet it is, it's amazing how we don't do that. And in, in reading your writing about it, I felt like, are we in a culture that maybe is growing? I feel like we are growing more passive. We don't want to, to, to do the big ask. That's so vulnerable. And we'd rather just put it out there and have somebody do it. And you did the study on that and realized that over and over, people just don't ask. And the power of it, I guess that's what you gave to me, Zoe, is it so powerful? And it kind of made me question myself, am I doing that enough? Or am I just kind of giving a passive, uh, passive aggressive aspect at it? It's, so when you say you're a people pleaser, what I find is 90% of us are people pleasers. Fewer than that realize that we're people pleasers. And a lot of people don't know that they're people pleasers until they do something like the no challenge that I'll give people to do 24 hours of no, where you say no. And so I totally challenge you to do this as well, Kevin, if you're up for it. (laughs) Okay. But 24 hours of no to every single person who asks you for something or makes an invitation. And this doesn't mean like, 
kids, family, we're spending a lot of time with them, say it's a weekend day. Right. You don't have to say no to your 17 year old son 19 times in 24 hours, but saying no to each person at least once the first time they come to you so that you experience what it feels like to say no and you experience their reaction to you saying no. So for anyone else who wants to do the challenge, I encourage you to, but of course you can say no. You (laughs) don't ruin your life. Yeah. So, you know, like your dream comes true, right? Like your agent is like, oh, we have the best book deal for you. And I'll be like, yeah, no, never mind. (laughs) Right, Um, right. And everyone has the right to change their mind always. And that includes you. So if you've said no to something that then you want to change your mind and go back and say, yes, the other person will be so happy. And generally just practicing saying no with warmth and even with a sense of humor is the practice that helps us get over this fear that a lot of us don't even know that we have that that you just shared. We're people pleasers. We don't want to say no. We don't want to alienate other people, but saying no doesn't have to alienate them at all. And in some cases, it can actually even bring us closer. But in many cases, what it helps us do is make that transformation that you're talking about from being someone who that many of us are just passively doing nice things, passively doing good. When someone comes and asks us for a favor, we say yes, rather than doing the big, great things that we might dream of and aspire to, not just because we didn't ask, but because we are so tapped out and busy and exhausted from saying yes to everyone else's asks. I feel like you've been talking to my therapist. My, my <laughs> other, uh, other book is uh, One on Boundaries uh, by uh, Nedra Glover Tawab. And uh, th- that you, you just hit it. It's, it's, I'm learning. Again, I'm aware. I'm getting a little bit better. I, that one I am, I'm probably getting a little bit better, but it's, uh, it's not comfortable at all. Saying no is not, it still feels so bad. It, it honestly does, but I'm, I'm learning, but to your, you know, to your point here, asking, you know, asking, whether that's asking for help, asking for the sale, asking for the date, asking for the whatever, even, you know, asking, well, I like what you said. Uh, I did it today. Gosh, so I, for, I did it today with another son. And I use your thing of, okay, I want to influence you to do this. So I'm going to ask you, how can I influence you to spend some time? I actually wanted him to go outside, you know, play in the snow, get, get out of, get out of the house, you know? And so I did that. How can I influence you? And, uh, and I said a couple of things. He says, you can't bribe me. I said, yes, I can. It's for your good. I don't get points here. This is for you. So I'm absolutely uh, bribery, manipulation, whatever. So I'm playing this out. But we're back to that point. So, of, so what, what did he say? Did he tell you how to influence him or what he needs for a bribe? He actually was, uh, I think it, I, I'm going to use the word moved. He was moved enough by my effort to do that and to ask him that, that he said, I'll just do it anyways. I don't mm-hmm. have to, I don't have to bribe. Because I've, I've met the, the funny thing in my house is uh, that I perpetuate is, look, dude, I'll give you a hundred bucks to do X, Y, Z. And he responded initially, said, no, you won't. I said, well, how, what would it take, seriously, to give me a number? Or I'm going out. What do you want? I'll get you something to eat. You know? and, and just the conversation was enough mm-hmm. for him to hear me, hear my heart. And, and, and again, he knows it's to have him do something. I'm not getting points somewhere that I know of for getting him to go outside and get some vitamin D. Or today it would be some snow. But 
Um, yeah, and and that's exactly what we were talking about about being influenceable. Yeah, right. That you approach him with an open mind and an open heart, and then he's willing to let you influence him because you're willing to let him influence you. Well, and it brings me around really the anchor of your message for me is it's one of those messages, one of my favorite kind where it is a win-win proposition that it is not just the, you know, quote, right thing to do, the nice thing to do, to be interested in this other person. It is the most profitable. And so as everybody who's on, listen to the show, who's a coach or consultant or business owner, uh, and they're looking for the next, you know, sale, the next investor, the next person that they can help if they don't have the superpower of influence, as your book says, uh, they don't have much. And you're saying it can be constructed. So thank you for doing what you do for, uh, having researched this and doing the work to bring it forward in this book that I, uh, I'll be shamelessly trying to get everybody to go by. Uh, Zoe, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much, Kevin. Well, friends, Zig Ziglar is well known for saying everyone is in sales. And what he means is everyone is in the business of influence. That's what good selling is. If you aren't having the impact on others you desire, you need to increase your ability to have influence, uh, respect, attraction even. And this is not just an inherent ability some have and some don't. It's something that is learned and grown and refined. And I recommend check out Zoe Chance's book, Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. And connect with her at zoechance.com. Coming up next in episode 990, I'm with Tom Ziegler to talk about another powerful personal attribute we can use for our benefit and others, selflessness. It's not just an altruistic platitude, but a strategy to serve others. And as you'll hear, serve yourself, which sounds odd. How can you be selfless and serve yourself? Well, tune in to the next episode. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.